Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, Ukraine has lost its grain deal. Russian fertilizer is struggling to get to market. Now India wants to ban exports of non-Basmati rice. The ratchet on food prices is by no means over. Now the ratchet on politics really begins. Where are the next big food riots going to come from? Call in the plumbers, there's been a big blockage in the UK gilts market. Why is liquidity suddenly drying up in a £2 trillion pool? And what happens next, now that the British government might be forced to double its deficit? Finally, remember the Huawei 5G ban? For almost three years, sanctions on microchips knocked the Chinese out of the high-end phone business. Now, it seems the company has managed to produce its own chips. Is there anything we can't incentivize the Chinese to make better than us? But first... Currying favour. Russia has decided to withdraw from the grain agreement that it had with Turkey, Ukraine and the United Nations. There's so much speculation and theorizing as to why Russia has done this. There are some, perhaps some obvious reasons, some less obvious reasons. We won't go into the detail. What's important is that they've withdrawn. This was a deal that allowed Ukraine, which before 2022 was the fifth largest grain exporter in the world. And it allowed Ukraine to export its, its, its grain by sea from Odessa, which is on the south coast of Ukraine on the Black Sea and essentially exported to Turkey, or through the Bosphorus at least. That's now ended, so Ukraine in theory won't be able to export that grain. It will leave only land routes available for Ukraine to do that, which almost that was made even worse by the fact that uh, uh, Russia and Belarus, uh, Belarus were knocked out of the fertilizer market to a certain degree. It was made worse by the fact that um, the the conflict in Ukraine is causing disruption in the food supply chain because Russia was the largest exporter of grain. Ukraine was the fifth largest exporter of grain. Now you've got no grain deal at all with Ukraine. And also India is thinking of uh, cutting uh, by 80%, i.e. all rice, that's not basmati rice, which is 80% of Indian exports. It's thinking of cutting that altogether which of course will reduce the amount of rice. Most rice is consumed, as one would imagine, in Asia. But of course, if rice, if the price of rice goes up, they'll start substituting to a certain degree. So food prices everywhere will go up. And it's really looking as though this food inflation situation is going to get worse. It's not looking good at all. Now, you, Philip, have written about this Traditionally, food prices of this nature affect the third world. We famously recently the Arab Spring, but there was, you know, in my lifetime, there's also been um, the political unrest caused by food in places like Mexico as well. But still, it's the developing world 
However, you've written recently that this is now starting to affect the Western world and especially Europe. And you took a bit of flack for that, but you had a lot of uh, data and a very logical argument. So it seems like it's going to get worse. Yeah, it could do. I mean, we should probably run through what's actually happened since um, <clears throat> the announcement that you that you said. So um, wheat has uh, the wheat futures market has gone gangbusters. Um, it's up about 16% in two days, which is a lot. I don't think you've really seen this price action, by which I mean the rapidity of this change since the invasion. When I look at the, the series, I don't see price action of this magnitude since the invasion. It doesn't mean that what's going on now is as bad as the invasion. And I make no predictions how high the wheat price can go from here. But that kind of initial price action it's one to watch. Price action like that can build on itself. The other thing is that there's been a lot of, um, I suppose, uh, a celebration that the, the wheat prices are down from where they were in kind of May of last year when they peaked. Wheat prices are still extremely high by historical standards. So just to give some sense, in May, the global price of wheat was uh, $299 per metric tonne. Outside of the big spike we saw after the invasion, the previous high was four hundred dollars in two thousand eight when we had that huge commodities cycle. the The typical price of wheat should be around one hundred and eighty, hundred and eighty dollars a square metric ton, and we're at three hundred. So prices remain elevated. We tend to pat ourselves on the back with um year-on-year -year changes and so on. But this is misleading for commodities markets. In terms of the, the rice market, the prices are a little bit elevated. They weren't impacted by the war in the same way, although they have been impacted by the inflation. There's been an upward inflationary trend in rice. There hasn't been a spike in the market since the Indians announced that. It is interesting that they've done it. It can't help very much, whereas the grain deal has got a great deal of press because obviously that's war related. It means that, you know, Western newspapers can complain about Russia doing something, you know, which they like doing these days. But ultimately, the newspapers don't tend to actually report these food issues. And um, so we're not hearing as much about the rice. And I think basically the reason for that is that people in the West, journalists and so on, have been trained or trained themselves not to think that food is a problem for the developed world. They, they think that this is a developing world problem and so on. But as you say, I wrote this piece about France seeing their food consumption collapse by 17%, utter record. We've never seen anything like it before. So hopefully, in the near future, the journalists and so on, possibly also politicians, they could maybe lead the way in pointing out that these things are a crisis. But frankly, we've had a lot of crises these past year and you know maybe three years or whatever you want to call it. And the um, the reporting on it, especially from an economic point of view, has been, how shall I put it, dismal, terrible, absolutely awful. <laughs> no one is being informed about what's been going on the past three years in the economy, and that's why we're in such a bad place. The one I'd say to pay more attention to is the fertilizer issue. My, my understanding of it is that the grain deal allowed both grain and fertilizer to pass through the um, black seaports, uh, mainly the one in Odessa. Um, the, the real problem for us would be if fertilizer doesn't make it through. The, the reason that we have the current 
food problems at the moment where we see an almost 20% drop in food consumption in Europe, I think is because uh, last year we effectively had the fertilizer market cut off, as you say. Fertilizer, obviously, you don't see the effects immediately. You see the effects in next year's crop yield. Now, I checked, um, I checked some of the fertilizer markets, uh, the market for ure- urea and for urea ammonium nitrate, and they haven't moved. But it wouldn't actually surprise me if they haven't moved because there's, number one, there's distractions. There's, you know, we're all focused on the wheat price move and so on. But even if these markets are carefully scrutinized, it might not be clear what this um, inability to ship this stuff from through the Black Sea means. It could be that... Um, that you know you can put it on a train and send it through and the reason that we had the shortages last year was actually more so because you know handlers in the west wouldn't were nervous to continue buying it from russia didn't understand the rules and so on but i think we'll find that out very very quickly and the last thing i'd point out is that um is that the food shortage question obviously i wrote about it and there was a little bit more attention on it um, subsequently, I'm not taking credit for that, but you know it's possible. I don't know. Um, there was a little bit of attention paid to it. I think the Wall Street Journal ran an article about f- food economization, people uh, buying a lot of this kind of um, almost expired food on the cheap, sales volumes of that going on. So there was kind of a little bit of watching of this. And I actually wonder whether the Russians might not see this as an opportunity to cut off fertilizer to the west it might even be that we've sorted out the regulatory aspects we we, our fertilizer buyers are comfortable continuing to buying it Uh, it might it might be that that we don't need to ship it through odessa but it also might be that the russians just are you know ticked off about the grain deal and they say well we're not going to send it anymore and they use it as kind of a counter sanction but i suppose we won't know all the stuff around fertilizers is currently speculative but i'd only highlight it because it does appear to be on the table, and it's extremely important. The most interesting thing that you said there, I think, is the strange disconnect between the importance of this subject and the way that the Western uh, legacy or prestige media is reporting it. I'm not sure what it's like in the US. I'm sure it's similar, but in the UK, certainly, there's a lot about the rising cost of food. There was a interesting article in the Daily Mail the other day I noticed about how um, some food prices have gone up by 175% in the last two years alone, which is an astonishing rate of uh, inflation for those of us in the West who are used to pretty low inflation in general. And there's a lot in some of the left of center media like The Guardian and The Independent about how uh, poorer people in the UK are really struggling. And, And there's an increasing use of food banks, for example. And again, I'm sure that's the same in the US. It's probably the same in Europe as well. But there's a strange disconnect between showing a great deal of concern about that and and, and reporting on that quite extensively and reporting on what's going on in the commodities side of that market. And it's not looking good at all. Like I say, you've already got quite high food prices. You've already got quite high fertilizer prices. And now we see that the grain deal is over and grain futures have gone gangbusters. You know, they've they've had a sudden surge, which is quite unusual historically. India is considering quite seriously reducing its exports by 80%, which is a a huge amount. And 
it's going to affect things in Asia because Asians eat the majority of rice, but that's also going to affect the rest of the food chain as well because as the price of one goes up, people start to try to substitute. And that, you know, there seems to be very little consideration about, certainly from politicians, about what we can do to solve the root causes of this. There's a lot of talk about, you know, supporting people who are really struggling to put food on the table, but not much about solving the causes of this. I find it all quite weird, but it's really very serious indeed. We've also had, you know, neither one of us, Philip, are agricultural experts, I'm sure, and certainly not meteorologists, but we all know that uh, El Nino is coming, and that is a weather system in the South Pacific that causes uh, a lot of heat waves, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, but it, it, it has knock-on effect on weather systems around the world, and it's here this year, which you know might well further affect the price of food in a, in a negative way by uh, reducing further crop yields. And I think what's important to get through to our listeners is that this in our lifetimes, I mean, I'm, you know, approaching uh, middle age now, but so in my lifetime, at least, this is only something that's really affected the developing world. It's affected poor countries. We saw it in the Arab Spring. We see, we saw it in Africa all the time. We see it in certain parts of Asia. I remember when I was younger, it was, you know, there were issues in China, but it doesn't really affect Western Europe. We're used to being able to put food on the table. We might have to shop at, I don't know, Aldi instead of Sainsbury's or, you know, but we can always put food on the table at the end of the day. At these food prices, at this level of inflation, it is going to start affecting Western Europe. And it is affecting Western Europe. And and as I say, this sort of price inflation, if it's not dealt with quickly, will start to have political and social effects. You'll you'll get political instability and you will get social unrest. It's a it's a kind of an iron law. It's so much of an iron law that it's it, it's almost a mechanical action, right? Let them eat cake. I, I know that's an apocryphal quote. It probably never happened, and it probably a bad translation of the word brioche anyway. But it's a famous quote for a reason. That's because food shortages, food high food prices, cause bad things to happen to countries. And we're now in a situation where it's it, it, it's bad in terms of food inflation. It's bad in terms of the commodities market that underlies that food inflation, and it looks like it's getting worse. Surly Bonds of London. Yeah, so there was a, a story out this week uh, in the Financial Times about uh, basically uh, large investors steering clear of the gilt market, which is obviously the um, UK government debt market. The title of the article was Big Investors Steer Clear of Gilts as High UK Inflation Lingers. The the article quoted a bunch of kind of senior people involved in the UK government bond market, I suppose, and um, they were saying that they were nervous to step into the market because uh, of high inflation and unpredictability. Now, I've heard for quite some time from contacts in the city and so on that the UK debt markets have not been behaving like normal developed debt markets effectively, that they've become pretty illiquid. And they're still very large, obviously, but the liquidity has uh, dried up a little bit and that's made it a lot more difficult to trade them and so on. So basically what happens uh, if liquidity dries up in a market like that is it makes the market much more fragile or sensitive. Um, 
if there's a shock in a deeply liquid market like the US treasury market as it is right now um the the market is much more likely to absorb that shock whereas if you have a market that's a little bit disconnected and illiquid like the UK market apparently is a shock is, is much more likely to create a kind of a a cascade effect this comes at a pretty bad time because um it looks like the government is set to issue an awful lot of debt this year um the reports are saying that the government is preparing to sell 241 billion pounds worth of gilts in the current fifth fiscal year and that's up about 100 billion from last year so it's almost doubled it's up by about 40% or 35 40% the issue with this is basically that this is a lot larger borrowing then we may be led to believe if we're looking at forecasts, for example, by the Office for Budget Responsibility that um, independently assesses the UK government's finance. Um, just to give uh, just to give some sense of that, the OBR is forecasting for this year a deficit of 5.1% of GDP. Well, £241 billion is about 8.6% of GDP. Now, whatever is causing this discrepancy, those are very, very different numbers. 5.1% of GDP versus 8.6, which is almost you know more than 50% more, implies an awful lot of debt going into this kind of fragile market, which could be uh, could be quite problematic. Um, the other issue with this is that, as far as I can tell, the OBR projections based on basically the the actually existing deficit as we see it now, which is pretty much what the projection is, doesn't take into account that there could be a recession. Now, just to give some sense, I went and um and you know looked at how how much the government deficit increased in the previous recession. I don't mean the coronavirus one, I mean the previous proper recession in 2008-2009. Basically the reason for doing this was I think we've said on the show before property markets are quite fragile right now. Um, we could have a similar collapse in house prices, collapse in tax revenues from uh, corporate and residential property and the unemployment caused by that. So so just assuming that you get a similar increase to 2008-2009 in terms of unemployment benefits, um, taxes falling and so on, it's not a terrible assumption. I mean, it's a little rough and ready. You could probably do it more delicately if you wanted to spend more time on it. Um, but the number I got from that was actually scary. If we factor in the debt being issued, currently the £241 billion, and then if we assume that, say, in the next year or two, you know, year, 18 months, whatever, that we get a recession not that dissimilar to 2008-2009 from a collapsed property bubble or something similar, public borrowing goes up anywhere from 13.1% to 15.8%. Now, we did hit something similar in terms of borrowing as a percentage of GDP in the pandemic when they did, I mean, in retrospect, very crazy policies of basically paying half the country to stay home. But given that people remember that and understand what a large uh, intervention that was in the economy, to get to those sort of numbers without paying half the people to stay at home is sort of terrifying because it sort of means it doesn't mean that those levels of borrowing are normal. I mean, we're talking about a scenario of high interest rates um, and a recession, but recessions are fairly normal. 
They happen every now and again. And if Britain's caught into a cycle where a recession can generate similar borrowing to a um, to a lockdown and paying everybody to stay at home, we're in a lot of trouble. And then, of course, marry that to the fact that we have these reports of a fairly illiquid bond market. And I think it it, it spells one thing, that the sterling could fall, that sterling could fall um, if this absolutely wad of borrowing hits a market that doesn't really want it. And of course, we've seen this before in 2008, 2009, sterling fell 20% and it never recovered. It bounced around, but it never recovered those highs. Sterling fell again after Brexit. That was more of a psychological phenomenon than pre- previous. But this says to me that that a 20% decline in sterling would be the low end of an estimate in the scenario that I'm talking about. Now, maybe all this doesn't come to pass. These are kind of crystal ball gazing kind of things, and they're a little bit more crystal ball gazing than we usually do on the podcast. But those numbers are real. They're not crazy projections. And we come out with these absolutely mad borrowing numbers. Yeah, I think even without a worst case scenario, Britain is in a very vulnerable situation at the moment. We have spoken on the podcast before about how Britain, how the United Kingdom is uniquely vulnerable in present circumstances. Why is that? The first reason is that for decades now, it has had a twin deficit, a a trade deficit and a fiscal deficit. The fiscal deficit is that you know government revenues are lower than its expenditures. The, it's a budget deficit. It means that the government spends more than it takes in. That has to be paid for by selling debt. But because we've got a trade deficit or current account deficit, that means that that debt ultimately uh, is being sold to foreigners to a greater degree. So essentially, we're reliant on, for, uh, on foreigners' willingness to give us money to cover our budget deficit. In addition to that, Britain has a really outsized financial sector. The city of London is huge compared with the size of you know, the country as a whole in terms of its GDP. And because of these you know, financial flows in and out of the city, it also means that we're, you know, we're vulnerable to a sudden stop there, a, a sudden removal of those financial flows. And... Uh, you know, I think even without being a worst case scenario, we're currently running uh, a deficit of over 5% of GDP before we have a recession. I know in a way that that's better than some other countries. It's better than, say, France. It's, it's you know, better than, is it now better than the US, I believe, as well. But other countries aren't quite as vulnerable as the UK for a variety of reasons. The dollar, of course, is the the, the the international reserve currency it tends to be the place where people go during a crisis to park their money because it's the kind of it's still now maybe just about the the world's safe haven or at least it traditionally was and you know france is part of the eurozone and it doesn't necessarily have a trade deficit as huge as ours or it certainly didn't until recently so i think we have to bear in mind that britain is really uniquely vulnerable and if it's whacking a whole you know quarter of a trillion pounds worth of debt you know into the market all at once for whatever reason and it's running a big trade deficit and it looks like it could go into recession and there's geopolitical issues at which you know britain is fairly central 
especially given the position of the City of London in terms of things like insurance and and uh, investment banking. I think it's in quite a uniquely vulnerable situation at the moment, and you know you're quite right to be worried. You know, like even without the sort of worst case scenario that you or reasonable worst case scenario that you looked at, I think it is something that people ought to be worried about. I think as well, though, that Britain ultimately will just be the canary in the coal mine here. I think there's far more than Britain who are going to be very vulnerable in this sort of situation. Um, the Eurozone and its member countries have a whole range of problems from their energy and their economic model right through to basic things like the fact that the Eurozone is a suboptimal currency zone and everything in between. It's probably not as vulnerable as Britain in terms of being hit early and loudly, but it's still vulnerable. People in Britain should be worried. Uh, I certainly am. But more than that, ultimately, I think it's fair to say that Britain might just be the canary in the coal mine on this. I'm definitely sympathetic that Britain is the, isn't the only place with problems. But in the other part of what you're saying, you're completely correct that although the Eurozone probably has relatively similar problems, I think there are large government deficits there. They're probably for the same reason, you know, energy price guarantees and so on. That's what's creating this to a large extent. But on the other hand, as you alluded to, the Eurozone is effectively a closed system. So just to give some sense, the Eurozone since 2008 basically has been running consistently, consistent current account surpluses. So it's it's been running trade surpluses. Now, this year, it's dipped into a trade deficit that's probably got some of the Europeans very upset, but it's only 1% of GDP. So even with these crazy energy prices and you know all the chaos that's going on in the world, the euro area is still um, uh, a healthy enough uh, economy, at least relative to its trade, that it only falls into a uh, deficit, uh, current account deficit, trade deficit um, of 1% of GDP. Britain's at the moment is 5.6% of GDP, which is by far the highest trade deficit on record. By the way, those numbers are for 2022. Could they have improved a little this year for both the euro area and for the UK due to uh, an easing of energy prices? Possibly. We don't know. I mean, food prices have gone up as well this year. So we'll have to see how that comes out in 2023. But the, the deficit numbers that we currently have are astronomically high for the UK. So um, you're right that it's a canary in the coal mine insofar as the fundamental issues facing Britain and um, and Europe are the same. But um, this problem with it, the gilt market tied to this huge current account deficit, and of course, just to kind of clarify, the current account deficit is financed by selling assets abroad, much of which are gilt. So um, so the mechanism by which the market could spit the dummy, as the Americans say, uh, by which they mean a soother, is, um, is basically that, that, um, that the government could try and sell a very large batch of gilts. Um, there won't be any buyers or there'll only be buyers for half the batch or something. And the Bank of England has to step in and buy those gilts. So the foreigners don't buy them. And so sterling falls accordingly more the borrowers sell them into the market because they're concerned about the volume of gilts in the market at that point. So that scenario is is actually unique to Britain. And although I, I'm sympathetic with the view that it is the canary in the coal mine because of all you, all you mentioned about the real effects of energy prices and so on in Europe, um, 
having a very uh having a crisis if a crisis occurred again not making a huge prediction here just uh highlighting a vulnerability that's very credible if they had a crisis it could be extremely painful because the the pain of a crisis itself has knock-on effects it doesn't um of course a crisis reverts eventually all crises by definition uh, eventually resolve themselves and usually after a relatively short period of time but a crisis like that can have ongoing damage. Economists often talk about hysteresis, path dependency, and so on. And and that, my feeling, will be is a very path dependent event. So I think the guilt market is worth uh, keeping an eye on. Government borrowing figures are worth keeping an eye on. If and when a recession hits, everyone will be talking about unemployment and GDP growth. Uh, if our listeners want to be tip of the spear, I would advise immediately going to the government website and seeing how much uh, borrowing has increased. Home and Huawei. Microchips have been huge news uh, recently, as listeners will uh, could hardly have missed, uh, with a range of uh, US measures, sanctions, restrictions on China's ability to access high-end chip semiconductor wafers and lithographic machinery that produces the real a high-end kind of, you know, seven nanometer and smaller um, uh, semiconductor wafers. Now, what people might have forgotten is that this uh, chip war, if we want to call it that, didn't start last year with uh, the Biden administration's uh, restrictions on uh, Chinese access to high-end chips. In fact, it started... Uh, three or four years ago in uh, 2019, 2020, when the US restricted uh, Huawei, the Chinese uh, mobile phone and telecoms company, from getting access to 5G chips, which at the time were and still are indeed uh, quite specialized and uh, fairly high end. Now, if you all remember, what had happened was Huawei's mobile phone division had been making really serious inroads into the mobile phone market. Its offer, uh, its mobile phones were actually extremely good. And for the quality of the hardware that they had, the, the chips, the camera, the memory, the, the, the battery life, the screen resolution, the price was amazing. It was fantastic. And because of that, they were really making big inroads into the market. They were kind of approaching Samsung and Apple in terms of total sales. They might have even started to overtake. At the same time, they started offering a 5G solution for telecommunications networks. And I think this was quite shocking at the time to Western political leaders. 5G was the next level of uh, mobile telecommunications, and it wasn't going to be the sort of jump that we had from 3 to 4G, it was going to be much more revolutionary than that. And here were Huawei, and they looked like they were two, three, maybe even more years ahead of the Western companies like Cisco and Sony Ericsson in terms of their 5G solution. And if we remember what happened is the US went on a kind of a, a, a diplomatic tour de force, essentially, try to get its allies to lock Huawei out of their 5G networks, despite the fact that they were ahead of their competition. It was probably the, the, the best at the time solution for 5G networks. It did this for other reasons as well. It said there were security issues and there were certain 
uh, trade issues, et cetera, et cetera. I don't mean to to say necessarily that it was entirely about competition, but it might well have been. And part of this was that you know Huawei was targeted quite extensively. They, uh, as a company, they were locked out of five G chips, and that really hammered their mobile phone sales. Their their revenues from mobile phones, uh, I believe, more than halved. Now, three years later, news has emerged that Huawei has developed a 5G chip, which is just as good as anything on the Western market, and they've started installing it on their phones. They can't install it on all of them yet. They're still in the process of ramping up production, but by next year, maybe the year after, they'll be installing it on everything. It's only taken them three years, essentially, to develop an exact, I mean, not an exact copy, but a facsimile of something that the West banned them from using. And I think given what's gone on in the last year about the the much more well-known or perhaps fresher in the memory chip war um, with you know China being restricted access to semiconductor wafers, lithographic machines, and microchips, or the, the higher-end ones, I think now we've got a benchmark. It takes them three years to catch up and produce their own. And when they do, because they've got a huge market and because they can often manufacture the same things at a much lower cost, we can expect them to have developed a, an industry that can potentially outcompete one of the West's key industries for the next hundred years. So, uh, Philip, I mean, you've been reading about this in more detail, and it, it seems to me that this is actually pretty big news, and it's been reported very little. Well, I think it kind of indicates some of the stuff that we're saying. The Chinese are perfectly competent. They may be a few years behind in key technologies, but they're only a few years behind. And so it'll only take them a few years to catch up. And now we can put a number on that, three years, not very long, really not very long. I remember the Huawei ban stuff as if it was yesterday almost. It was toward the uh, toward the end of the Trump administration, um, which doesn't seem like a very long time ago. So, so I think that vindicates our position on the podcast that these sort of bans are frankly fruitless. I'll talk more maybe in a minute about that. One thing I'd just say, you know, anecdotally, having had a 5G phone for about a year, still don't really see what all the hype is about. Hasn't improved my phone particularly great. Maybe it's a little bit faster downloading videos. I can't really tell when my phone's on 4G or 5G. I can definitely tell when it's on 3G. It's a little clunky, but I I wonder if the technology was a little bit over-exaggerated. I'll leave that to the uh, computer experts to ride in and chastise us for being uh, amateurs and, and just uh, trying to judge things. I think I might even chastise you for that, Philip Pilkington. But uh, you know, he who he who judges his five G on uh, you know how quickly he can download his uh, cats doing funny thing videos. I'm not sure that's uh, a reasonable <laughs> a reasonable way of doing it. I mean, five G, for instance, is really important for things like um, you know it can be. I, I believe I'm right in saying that the Chinese are pretty advanced in using it for things like the manufacturing process and sensors and instantaneous transfer of information uh, and i think as well we still need to build out our networks it's, i mean 5g works in a very different way to 4g and you need a much denser network of um of towers and systems and all of the rest of it so you know i think maybe we're not quite there yet i'm a tech skeptic Again, I'm always have been don't believe in quantum computing uh, I haven't noticed much of a difference on my phone. Maybe in three years, it'll be controlling my brain like the really hardcore 5G people say. But 
right now, right now I haven't seen a difference. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's just an observation, personal observation. People can take it for what they will. In terms of what the sanctions did, I, I think this is a really good model case. We have a kind of a test case uh, for a technology that wasn't domestically available for China that is said to be important and clearly did. I'll, I'll say this. It clearly stimmied their commercial capacity because apparently people wanted these 5G phones because you saw um, exponential revenue growth um, for Huawei up until 2020. So the, 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 the ban is enacted in 2019. Presumably they had a chip stockpile or something, so it didn't affect them in 2020. And so you have, um, you have annual growth of, you know, since about 2015, you have annual growth of about 100 billion yuan a year. And then in 2021, it falls. It falls by uh, over 200, 260 billion yuan. And it's it stayed there in 2022. So so perhaps uh, other phone users have judged 5G to be far more important than I have. Um, and they've bought 5G phones and Huawei's seriously lost out. Now, that shows what the sanctions can definitely do. They can definitely stop temporarily the production of the things that they require. But now we're seeing that they can have this knock-on effect of getting the uh, the company to produce these things domestically. Now, before I go into some of the details about that, because they're quite interesting and potentially relevant for future developments, we should just point out what this means economically. And I want to state this as clearly as possible because it's an ongoing theme in this sanctions debate that I don't think is being uh, well recognized. Let's take Huawei as a really good test case. And let's say that they got three years of juice out of these sanctions. Now, there might be a little more. I'll go into that in a moment when I go into the details. But for the sake of argument, let's say three years. We can say five years if we want. Three years of juice. You you cut the revenue of a competitor company, which is Huawei, for three years. But then that company goes and starts producing those chips themselves. Now what's happened is you've lost a purchaser of those chips and you've created a competitor to your producers of those chips. Now, here's the, here's the economic um, uh, give or take there. The policymakers need to understand and drill into multiple points in their brain. Is it worth it? Even if you, even if you think that these sanctions are all about hobbling China and helping the West, is it worth it? A three-year decline in revenue, call it about a 25% decline in revenue, for one of these companies versus the long-term revenue that they're making selling the, now potentially selling these chips to the people you were selling them to before and certainly not buying them from you i would say no that's a bad deal that's short-termist that's eating your seed corn that's um consumption over investment i think that is a bad approach to economic strategy so just to go into some of the details just because some of them one or two of them stood out um the uh, research companies that are, are feeding Reuters, this, this story is reported by Reuters, are saying that this domestic manufacturer, it's called, um, it's called Semiconductor Manufacturing International Co., SMIC, they haven't perfected the techniques. They think basically that they'd probably only get what they call a 50% yield on production of these chips, by which I, I think they mean these chips will be relatively more expensive to produce using the rather limited technology they have and the workarounds that they've created rather than uh, what we get. But again, it, when we think about the trade-offs that I've just highlighted, that just means you push out three years to maybe five, okay? Because if they've got it up to 50% as good as what we've got now, it probably is only going to take a year or two to get it up to 
And knowing the Chinese, they'll probably get it down really cheap and push it up to 130% or something because the Chinese are really good at quantification and they have low labor costs. The other thing that stood out that was really interesting to me, if, if readers recall that one of the things that was put in place of the sanctions to, to China in the more recent package of sanctions was the, um, the, the, the banning of the Dutch company ASML from, sending, uh, from, uh, from selling what are called extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, which are the, the machines that make the really high end, I think you referenced them, seven nanometer chips. Now, this seemed to me the most sensible of all the parts of the sanctions. I personally don't think any of these are sensible. They just encourage the Chinese to develop their own industries. And as I said, that just gives them long-term gains and gives us short-term gains. So stupid trade-off. But this at least kind of made sense because it was the technology that could make the chips. So if you're going to sanction China and you're going to say, we're not giving you those, we're not selling you those chips, then the next logical step is to say, we're not selling you the things that you could use to make them. Well, some of the uh, reports have suggested that SMIC, this Chinese company, can actually produce seven nanometer chips. Now, we were under the impression, or I was under the impression, that you needed this extreme ultraviolet lithography technology from ASML in the Netherlands to do this. But the analysts are saying that they found indications that SMIC have managed to produce these seven nanometer chips by tweaking simpler they're called deep ultraviolet lithography machines. So extreme versus deep. The extreme ones, this is what the news reports are saying, I'm not an expert. The extreme ones are the really advanced ones that are supposed to do the seven nanometer chips, and the deep ones are supposed to do the less impressive chips. And they're saying that the Chinese have managed to tweak the deep ones to do these seven nanometer chips. Now, if there's anything to that, it just shows even more the point that we've been trying to make here. If you have an innovative people like the Chinese, they will always find ways around this. We know this from history. I won't go into it too much, but just take the example of the Nazi economy in World War II. The Nazis came up with all sorts of ingenious ways to get around resource shortages and so on. People have probably heard that they turned coal into, into diesel fuel at one point to power their tanks. There was all sorts of this stuff. And so if the technology is, if there's only a few years in the difference of the technological development, my opinion, you cannot stop this stuff. It, it's just impossible to do. And I think this Huawei thing is providing us with a fantastic test case. You know, you mentioned coal into diesel. I, I believe the South Africans uh, did something very similar during um, the apartheid-related sanctions as well. Um, they used their coal reserves to get oil and, and, and oil-based products. These historical instances perhaps should have been a warning, but of course, it is, much less it is less efficient to do it that way. I'm not sure that it's going to be that way with China. It, you know, it seems to me that China has a history, as you say, of producing things that are, you know, perhaps they produce them a year or two after the West, but they produce something as good as the Western equivalent. But less expensively. They're, they're currently in the process of taking over the world automobile market. You know, we hear about Tesla, but the, you know, the Chinese sell orders of magnitude more uh, electric vehicles than um, you know, the Americans, I think more than the rest of the world combined. I, I, I know microchips are a different level of manufacturing 
I mean, it's much higher value added than, you know, even a car. But at the same time, I see no reason why that, why the Chinese wouldn't be able to develop these eventually. And as I said before, it seems now we've got a benchmark. It's three years. And what Western companies are doing is, as you quite rightly said, they're not just depriving themselves of a market, which is China, which is a big portion of their market. You listen to NVIDIA in the US, you listen to Micron in the US. These guys are saying that it's somewhere in the region of 20% of their market. But what you're doing is you're creative, you know, because China has that big market, because it's very good at this, because it sees it as a strategically important industry, it is going to develop its own industry if you try to stop them. And because of those economies of scale, it's going to be a really powerful competitor for your companies. Now, chip manufacture is, we've said it before on this podcast, it's a high capital intensity industry. What does that mean? It means that you've got to invest vast sums of money in the industry, sorry, in your product, in your manufacturing process to stay competitive. If you don't invest that amount, if you don't invest these large amounts, you can't stay competitive. But to have that large amount, you have to have plenty of revenue. Otherwise, you're just not going to have the cash flows. You, you know, you're going to go into, in, in, into loss uh, every year. You're going to go bust as a business. So you need a high revenues from a big marketplace to be able to then invest these large amounts of capital in research and development, in manufacturing processes, et cetera, et cetera in order to stay competitive, in order to maintain these big revenue streams. Take away the Chinese market and at the same time, create a Chinese competitor for your services. And suddenly, revenues don't quite look as strong again uh, anymore. Suddenly, perhaps those capital investments in research and development are a little bit harder to come by. Suddenly, perhaps you're relying on the government consistently giving subsidies to this industry for it to stay competitive. And given that the US uh, and the West in general view microchips and semiconductors as a strategic industry in the 21st century, probably in much the same way as, you know, the British and French and Germans saw steel making in the 19th century, then, I, you know, I can only imagine that this is ultimately going to lead to taxpayer funding of these industries to keep them going. Because, you know, if, if the market is cut in half, at, you know, as a best case scenario, perhaps because, you know, the Chinese get half of it and the West gets half of it. I, I think that might be a best case scenario in the end, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, they only get, you know, they get as much as 80% of the market. I don't know. But, you know, if it's going to be 50% of the market, you've still got to invest vast sums of money to, to, um, you know, keep development, keep the pace of improvement of microchips going. It suddenly becomes a very competitive marketplace. So you've got to keep those investments high. I, you know, ultimately, I think this is going to prove to be a terrible mistake. I, I think people look back on this and say, oh my God, how, why did we do this? You know, we had, we had Intel, we had Micron, we had uh, Nvidia, we had the Taiwanese, we had Samsung. You know, we had the Dutch providing the lithographic machines. The West had an absolute chokehold on this strategic industry. And I have a horrible feeling that in 15 years, that's simply not going to be the case. And they're going to look back and they're going to realize that they made strategically a huge blunder. We're starting to see 
that basically at a geopolitical level, if people tell you that you can ban your way to prosperity, that's a bit like someone coming along to you at a personal level and handing you a book on how to get rich quick. It's it's not credible. And, you know, it should be kind of prima facie absurd. If, if you could ban your way to prosperity, everyone would do it. Fresh from a huge victory.